evening and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, as we move along in our study of this wonderful book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, and tonight we'll be looking at our message, Burden for a Lost People. Burden for a Lost People. Romans chapter 9, and we'll just be looking at the first five verses tonight. I think uh, we've arrived in our study of the book of Romans to a passage many times is ignored or misunderstood by uh, many great commentators and preachers of the gospel. Uh, But as we go verse by verse through the uh, various books that we study, uh, we don't dare uh, just ignore it, but uh, see what it has to say uh, for us as well. Uh, these next three chapters actually uh, are kind of of a parenthesis between chapter 8 and chapter 13 or uh, 12 or 13, something like that. Uh, uh, I said three, let's see, 9, 10, 11, yeah, 12. That's four. Uh, four chapters, I should say. Uh, many Bible scholars uh, feel that this uh, passage has no relevance to us uh, in uh, the church age at all. And yet, uh, we are, we're going to see, as we go through these verses, there are truths here that must be understood. And up until this point, Paul has been uh, going about the task of proving that salvation is a sovereign work of God, brought through grace by faith, and he's been telling his readers that men are saved by trusting the finished work of Christ on Calvary apart from any rituals or works And again, that's why this uh, book goes so well with our study in Galatians as well. But any Jew that was reading the book of Romans or the writing from uh, Paul uh, up to this point might get the idea that salvation by faith was just for the Gentiles. Uh, He might come to a conclusion that there's no hope for those who were descendants of Abraham. And so Paul pauses kind of in his teaching here to let his readers know, if they're Jewish readers, uh, that God wasn't finished with them as Jews. Uh, They still figured prominently in his plan for the future. And as we move through the next uh, several chapters here, we'll see that they have a lot to, uh, he has a lot to say uh, to the Jews as well. But there is also some meat here for us uh, as well. So in these opening verses of chapter 9, uh, reveals the heart of Paul for his people, the Jews. Uh, in doing so, he teaches us a lesson about the kind of heart we should have for the lost people around us tonight. And so we're going to look at a burden for a lost people. Notice, first of all, this, uh, as salvation is for all, but first of all, uh, a manifest obligation, a manifest obligation. Now, the first three verses really expose Paul's heart for those who were lost in Israel. And for eight chapters, Paul has been revealing truth that is thrilling to everyone who is saved by grace, but truth that is devastating to an unbeliever, especially to the unbelieving Jew, because he had been the recipient of such great amounts of truth, he felt an obligation to reach out to those who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And notice here the burden on Paul's heart as he lays it bare in these verses. Notice verse 1, Paul's honesty. 
He says here, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now all the lost people, all lost people, but especially the Jew, have looked with distrust and doubt at the message of the cross. And Paul has shared a lot of truth here, truth that if taken literally proved that outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no hope for salvation. Some people hearing the message of Paul may have been tempted to think, you know, you know, Paul, you're, are you really, uh, telling us the truth? Are you, uh, are you lying? Are you messing with us? Or what, what, what's going on, Paul? And after a scalding condemnation of Judaism, some Jews might even felt like, boy, we're just utterly outcasts here. It's hope, we're hopelessly written off by God forever. And yet Paul wants these people to know that he has a heart for them. He wants them to uh, see that uh, he is sincere about what he's saying and that he really does care. And that's why he calls the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and his heart, his own heart to testify to his honesty here. Paul wants them to know that the message that he's giving is absolutely true. And it's vital that believers operate from an honest heart. It's, it's vital that you and I operate from an honest heart. The world must know that we love them. Now, do you love the, uh, do you love the world? Well, uh, when I say the world, I mean the people of the world. Uh, we're told to love not the world, neither the things of the world, but we are to love the people of the world. When we say we love the world, uh, we need to, are we concerned about them? Uh, we talked about that a little bit this morning, about being concerned about our neighbors, being concerned about those perhaps that we work with. Now, John warned us that we could have a false love he told us that true love manifests itself in actions on behalf of others. First John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so if we're going to say, I love my, uh, my neighbor, I love my uh, fellow worker, I love the people of our community, then we got to be honest about that. Do we really love them or we, do we really have a concern about them? Uh, we must give them no reason to mistrust us uh, or the gospel message that we preach. We must never be guilty of saying anything that's untrue or hypocritical to those outside the family of God. And so uh, we may be the only hope that they ever have coming to Jesus. So first of all, we see Paul's honesty. Secondly, we see Paul's heaviness, verse 2. In verse 2, he says that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Paul tells his readers that his life is paralyzed by constant grief. The word used here refer to those who were overcome by mourning. When he says... Uh, have great heaviness and continual sorrow, continual sorrow. He was overcome by the morning, uh, by mourning and, and, and grief. Now, if you've ever, some of our uh, Armstead young people, they're familiar with what goes on in the Middle East, right? Um, 
I've never been there, but they could probably tell tell us better than, than I can. But I understand when they mourn, they're very vocal. They're very vocal about their grief. Um, you know, people respond to death all in, in different ways. I've been a chaplain for a number of years uh, and have been on death notifications uh, where we've notified a family of the death of a, a member of their family, and they respond all kinds of ways. And some really, really get very emotional and, and begin weeping and wailing. But I don't think it's anything like that Middle East uh, uh, weeping and wailing that they do over there. They're very vocal. To listen to them wail, it almost makes you feel as though you think they're being ripped apart. Paul wants his readers to know that he is operating under a heavy, heavy burden in his heart. Heavy burden for the lost of his people. Like a mother who's lost a child. I've been around some of those mothers who've lost children in car accidents. And it's a terrible thing to have to to, uh, be there, but they need someone. And I've been privileged to be able to help and comfort them. But sometimes there's just not much you can do. You can just be there. There's not much you can say. But Paul's heart is broken over the condition of the lost sinner. He lives under the constant burden of the reality that they are headed for hell. And the fact that they were perishing lies on his shoulders like a weight that's nearly impossible to carry. Now, did you know that that is the kind of burden we should have for sinners tonight? I wonder how, how burdened are we for the lost? Whether they be in our families, um, our neighbors, people that we work with, people that we meet along the way. You know, we're surrounded by uh, many, many people. Now, we don't have a great population up here in the northwest, but... Uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people still around here. People that are lost. People that, uh, we can't say there are millions of people here. Uh, this, this isn't the big city, but you don't have to go very far to a big city and you'll find millions of people without Christ. And many times we live our lives and we attend our worship services and we probably don't even think about them. I mean, when was the last time you were really burdened to pray for some person that you knew was a lost sinner? When was the last time God woke you up in the middle of the night so you could seek his face for a person that was lost in sin? When was the last time that you were moved to think that, you know, men and women and boys and girls are going to hell unless someone tells them about Christ? Sadly, most of us simply aren't affected by the condition of the lost sinner. We're sorry that they're lost, but we're not sorry enough to pray for them and tell them about Jesus. And perhaps we need to get with God and confess our cold, callous attitudes to the Lord and ask him to kindle a fire in us that will burn for the perishing. I wonder, are we willing to do that? Paul's heaviness is seen here. Even in this one little verse, 
that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. But thirdly, we find Paul's hunger, verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now here in this verse, Paul makes a statement that's really rather astounding. He says, if it were possible, he would allow himself to be separated from God and sentenced to hell if it would save lost Jews. That's an amazing statement. And Paul isn't just joking here. He meant what he said. He knew it was an impossibility, and he knew he was eternally secure in the Lord Jesus, but he was willing in his heart to go to hell that others might be saved. What a burden that must have gripped Paul's heart. I wonder if we've ever come to the place where we were willing to pray a similar prayer. I wonder if we're burdened enough for a lost sinner that we would pray for the Lord to save them regardless of what it took to do it. Could we say, Father, if it means that I be stricken, or if I must even die, save this person from hell. When our burden grows to the place that it consumes us like a weight, we'll pray that kind of prayer. When we get serious... I believe we'll see the Lord speak to hearts. I remember reading of a woman who became burdened for her drunken, abusive husband. She loved God, but he would not listen to the gospel. He was a vile man. He had no use for the church or for God. And one time there was a revival in her church, and she attended, and she invited the evangelist for, for supper. And when she set the table for the meal, she only had two plates, one for her husband and the other for her visitor. She did not set a plate for herself. And when the husband brought this to her attention, she replied, I'm too burdened to eat. How can I eat when I know that any breath might be your last, and if you die, you're going to go to hell? She said, I shall not eat any more food until the day you come to Christ as your Savior, but I shall pray for you and for your soul. And he responded by laughing at her. He told her that he would never, never be saved. But it wasn't many days until the husband became broken over his sins and he came to know Jesus as his personal Savior. And by the way, we're under the same obligation to of that occupied the mind of the apostle. There is a lost world all around us, and we must be under the burden for their lost souls. And so there's a manifest obligation. Secondly, there's a missed opportunity. A missed opportunity. We see this in verse 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Notice, first of all here, God's gifts to Israel. Israel had been partakers of many gifts from God. Notice there are six of them that are listed here. It helps identify Israel. Number one is the adoption. Adoption was national and pertained to a national entity, not to a separate individuals here. We're not talking about the adopting of children or adoption in, in the sense that we've been uh, speaking of it from 
this book or from the book of Galatians. But the only nation that God had ever called son is the nation Israel. We find that in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Hosea, God refers to the nation of Israel as his son. And God speaks of a nation not just as, a, as an individual, but uh, and he never said it of any other people. So he's talking about a national entity, a national identification here, the adoption. That was one of the gifts. Secondly was the glory. Now that was the physical presence of God with them as manifested in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Over in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 35, it says, And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode there on, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see, the children of Israel were the only people who ever had the visible presence of God. Now, there is no visible presence of God today, and we need to remember that. When you hear of people having visions and revelations from God, don't believe it. They may have visions, but they don't come from God. It may come from too much pizza or too much alcohol or something, but it wasn't from God. We do have the indwelling spirit of God, but there's no visible presence of God today. So they had the glory. Thirdly, they had the covenants. I mentioned here in verse 4, God made certain covenants with the nation of Israel that he intends to carry out. Many of them he has already carried out. He said he would make a blessing to all uh, them, a blessing to all people. He said David that was uh, this one who would come in his line, and all of this had been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus God made many covenants with Israel, with Abraham, with David, with the nation, which he's not made with any other people. To Israel belong the covenants. And then the law. The Mosaic law was given to the nation of Israel. Exodus 19 and verse 5. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And then God said in Exodus thirty-one thirteen, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. This is for the nation of Israel. Someone might ask, well, why don't you keep the Sabbath day? Well, I don't keep it because I'm not a member of the nation of Israel. So someone might ask, well, did God ever change the Sabbath day? No, God has not changed the Sabbath, but he sure has changed us. You see, we're now in Christ. We have a new relationship, and he gave the Mosaic law to Israel. So there was the gift of the law. Then there's the service of God. This had to do with worship of the tabernacle and temple. Uh, They were to be kingdom, a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19 and verse 6 says, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now the nation had failed God, but God did not give up his purpose that they should be priests. And so God took the tribe of Levi and gave them the responsibility of serving and caring for the tabernacle. And later on, it was the temple. Now, in the future, in the millennial kingdom, 
the nation of Israel once again be God's priest here upon earth. And then the sixth gift is the promises. Now the Old Testament is filled with promises he made to these people. God told Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Now the children of Israel were to possess the land. It was the promised land. And so this was a special covenant relationship with him, and they were considered his people. You see, all of the Old Testament prophets and prophecies were given to them. All the promises concerning the Messiah and coming kingdom were given to them. The people of Israel had been given more light than any people group in the world. And yet they became so bogged down in the letter of the law and the religious rituals that they missed their Messiah when he came. So you have God's gifts to Israel. Secondly, you have God's grace to Israel. Notice verse 5. Whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. When the Messiah came, he was born from among them as one of their own. No other people had that privilege. God became a man and was born among the Jewish people, and yet when he manifested himself to them, they refused to have him rule over them. John 1.11 tells us he came into his own, and his own received him not. In the parable of the Lord Jesus, as he likened himself to a certain nobleman, in Luke 19 and verse 14, he says, But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. Of course, just before Jesus was crucified, it tells us in John 19 and verse 15, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so to come to that place, they had to ignore every prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to disregard every miracle. They had to disregard every proof that Jesus was the Messiah. How, they, how did they do away with Lazarus? What did they do with Zacchaeus? How did they keep Bartimaeus or the Gadarian demoniac quiet? How did they silence 5,000 people who were fed by him? What did they do with the 500 who saw him after he had rose from the dead? Do You see, they had to climb over many high hurdles just to get past Jesus. And what they did was sin away their season of grace. Now the question is, what have we done with all that the Lord has given us? We have right here in our hands tonight the very word of God. We've heard it preached, we've heard it sung, and we're accountable for what we've been given. I've heard it said like this, it would be better to go to hell from anywhere on this planet than to do so from the pew of a Bible-believing fundamental Baptist church. To sin against this light, such light, would surely require a great judgment. We have been truly blessed to have God's word and to have the truth 
of salvation given to us. Listen, what have we done with the light that we've been given? Have we responded to it by embracing the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation? Or have we turned a deaf ear to the pleading of the Holy Spirit? Let's not let our lives be lives that are summed up as a missed opportunity. Israel missed an opportunity. Let's not miss our opportunity. And then thirdly, a manifest a magnificent observation. Again in verse 5, it says, Whose are the fathers and of whom are concerning the flesh? Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul ends this section with kind of a little doxology of sorts. Uh, he reminds his readers that Jesus, this Jesus he's preaching was no ordinary man. Uh, he is a no poor fool who didn't know what to, how to keep his mouth shut or uh, get himself, uh, uh, keep himself from being nailed to a cross. No, Paul closes this section by reminding us who Jesus is. And may we never forget this great Lord we serve and we love. Notice Paul's magnificent observations. First of all, the person concerning the person of Jesus. Paul calls him Christ. The word means anointed. Paul is simply reminding us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. He's the one God the Father promised, the one God the Father, uh, Father promised to send. He's the one who came to take away the sins of the world, John 1.29. He's worthy of our faith, our love, and our worship. He is the Christ. He is Lord and he is Savior. And may we never forget to love him and honor him as such. And so he's, he, he speaks of his person, the person of Jesus. He also speaks concerning the power of Jesus. Notice uh, that Paul says here, he's over all. Who is over all? We must remember that Jesus is an agent of creation. John 1.3 says all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. We must remember he possesses all power in heaven and earth. Matthew 28.18. We must remember that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 19 and verse 16. We must rem remember that Jesus is the one who holds all things together. Hebrews 1.3. And since he has the kind, that kind of awesome power, we can trust him to be able to do everything he's promised to do and will do. He is able. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Friends, he's not the God who was, He's still the great I am. He's all we need. So he makes this observation concerning the person of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus, and then thirdly, the position of Jesus. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to remind us that Jesus is also God. Speaking of the deity of Christ, it says there, Christ came who is overall God blessed. 
forever in verse 5. Now, this is kind of a strange way to construct a doxology. Without exception, in both the Old and the New Testaments, the word blessed always comes before the name of God. Let me give you a few examples. Genesis 14 and verse 20. And blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave them tithes of all. Genesis 24, 27. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham. In First uh, Kings 1 and verse 48, he says, And also thus said the king, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which hath given one to sit on my throne this day. In Psalm 41 and verse 13, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. In Daniel 3 and verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Luke 1.68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And we could go on and on and on tonight with verses throughout the Old and New Testament. And there are dozens of them. But I think these few will prove the point here. And what is that point? Just this, that that simple statement, Paul is very clearly trying to show his readers that Jesus is God. How? Well, the pronoun, look at it here, who is overall God blessed forever. The pronoun who has its antecedent, the word Christ, and who is the antecedent of God. And you see how the apostle tied them together. It wasn't an accident that he put uh, uh, blessed after God. Christ came, who is overall God blessed forever. This was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul was giving the saints of God another reason to rejoice. He's reminding us that Jesus is God. Jesus was not just another prophet, as some religions will try to tell you today. Oh, he's just another prophet. No, Jesus is God. That's very important. And since that's true, he's worthy of all love and worship and devotion that we can give him. Are we exalting him as we should? Well, Paul's theme in these five verses here has been the salvation of the lost sheep of Israel. Paul does not want them to go to hell. He wants to share with them the truth that his heart is broken for their condition and that he would do anything to see them saved by grace. I wonder, is that our heart tonight? Not just for the lost Jews, but for your lost neighbors, your lost family members. Are you burdened for them? Again, how long has it been since you brought their names up before the throne of grace? How long has it been since you wept for those who are separated from God by the gulf of sin? There's no better time to come before God, the God of glory, and seek his face for them than right now. (coughs) Let's pray.